0: Welcome to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast, presented by Cal Matters. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. Who are you?
1: I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. Liam, you're looking fresh, surprisingly so. This is the this is the uh, still stormy. I feel like I'm still going on adrenaline, you know, adrenaline from this week, uh, big election day. You know, I was up at I was up at uh, at 4:30 on Wednesday morning because I was the early guy. To help yep. out the L.A. Times Bureau, who had a long night, of course. Yes, right? yes. Uh, and uh, still going strong. Uh, I went home. Mine wasn't
0: so bad, actually. I went home right after they called the governor's race, basically. Yeah. Um, so forgive both of us. I think both of us are more tired than usual. Although I'm always pretty tired, so <laughs> I don't know. It's it's hard for me to tell. Um, today on the
1: podcast, what are we talking about today? we This is a potpourri. A potpourri of things. A grab bag. A grab bag. Uh, A little this, a little that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to break down how the uh, election results on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, affected um, housing politics going forward. Also talk through uh, some of the bills that have lived or died uh, based on previous podcasts that we've talked about that that legislation. So we'll update you on where things are. And we have a a fun little look forward uh, towards uh, a big issue that's going to be on the November ballot.
0: And that, of course, will be rent control. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Which we will be talking about, I think, many times. Heading into November,
1: and now the the
0: big reveal, right? And now the big reveal. So, Liam, it's
1: the avocado of the fortnight, <laughs> which, which is our.
0: We have new listeners, by the way. I've had multiple people ask me what the what the hell we're referring to. So, uh, it is our look at the whimsical slash absurd slash hopefully funny side of uh, California's insane housing situation, and. To, on this avocado of the fortnight one of my favorite mcs of all time Kanye mm-hmm and why don't you tell us Liam why Kanye is involved in our avocado of the fortnight
1: uh because uh, he um, has decided to get to jump in with the cool kids uh, and talk about affordable housing because that's the really cutting edge of cool these days Yes. you go to a, you go to a, a the woods in Wyoming to reveal your album And your new (laughs) album that you've broken up for a while. And you become an affordable housing developer. And that's what Kanye
0: has become. Um, Apparently so. So this came out earlier this morning. Is that
1: right? This is uh, this week. uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, this week. This is an article in the Architects newspaper um, where Kanye uh, Yeezy Home, which is aptly named his architecture studio, uh, with a few actual architect collaborators, mm-hmm. uh, put forward some ideas for prefab houses. Yeah. A prefab low-cost housing. Yeah. Uh, the design is described. Um, I'm going to read this to make sure I get this right. Sure. The dis- the quote, the slick interior images betray the minimal meets sumptuous vernacular Wes favors <laughs> showcasing <laughs> views of a sleek sunlit kitchen and an atmospheric courtyard. Sounds lovely. Yeah, who wouldn't want to live in Yeezy homes? Um, and I assume that
0: this is going to get tech funding because Kim has a pipeline to the right people. That's ki- what I've heard. Ki- so
1: Clearly, Kim Kardashian knows how to get things out of the federal government. Exactly. And maybe this will get some tax breaks for Yeezy homes, too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, wow. Yes. Well, we should actually say we
0: won't have a guest on, on this episode of the pod. It's just going to be me and Liam. We did reach out to Kanye for our guests, but um, he's he's fairly busy in Wyoming. Yeah. Uh, Let's get to our roundup. So the big takeaway from Tuesday was that for me, at least that Gavin Newsom will very, very likely be our next governor of California.
1: Yeah, so he finished first, I think, as as expected in the primary. And then the the big question was who was going to finish second. Um, uh, Republican businessman John Cox, L.A. Mayor Antonio Viragoso were considered the two that uh, were most likely to finish in that spot. And Cox um, absolutely uh, blew him out. I mean, it wasn't even close. Yeah, uh, and a very clear and decisive second place for Cox, setting up a traditional Republican versus Democrat uh, election in November. And as you say, uh, given the way things are now in California, it's very likely that we'll be seeing a um, a, a Democrat in the governor's mansion.
0: How do you think the Newsom Cox pairing going into November is going to shape how we talk about housing?
1: Yeah. So um, it, it's it's. Uh, uh, interesting on, on two levels. I think on the one level, um, you know, you're going to you're uh, I mean, we have now the, the next governor of the state. Has committed to building a tremendous amount of new housing while they're, they're they're in office, and even extending beyond when they're when they're in office, given the timelines that that they've laid out. Uh, and it is interesting, you know, given the fact that that Cox, as the Republican, as you might expect, um, focuses a- almost exclusively on market-based solutions uh, to the housing state's housing problems. In reality, um, Gavin Newsom has a much higher number for what he would like the the state to build um, during his his tenure in office, and so he has a goal of uh, over the next seven years, um, building 500,000 new homes a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've talked about how uh, out of scale that is with the um, state's history and how unprecedented that would be. Uh, And that tops um, John Cox's goal, which is 3 million new homes um, a year, which is, you know, again, another very aggressive goal, um, but one that the state has, in fact, in the past met.
0: If Newsom does become governor, what would you expect in the first six
1: months of a Newsom administration um, when it comes to housing? Well, um, I think he's going to have to put something out quickly to show that he has any intention of delivering on his promise. Uh, and so uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think the easiest thing that he's talked about a lot is appointing a new homelessness czar, mm-hmm. right, uh, to coordinate better uh, you know, uh, 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 prison issues, um, health care issues, welfare issues, all these things that in, in many ways intersect with homelessness issues. And so I would not be shocked to see... Um, that being done almost immediately sort of a day one thing. I wouldn't also be shocked to see, uh, you know, that there being some money allocated um, in the budget, particularly towards homelessness, mm-hmm. um, to show that he's willing to tackle it. But the sort of the long-term structural things with respect to, to, to changing some of the um, more ingrained land use rules that we have in the state, I think that's something that's going to take uh, take time. But again, the longer he takes, the the harder it's going to be for him to meet his goals.
0: I just want to protect myself real quickly here. I don't want to sound completely dismissive of a Cox candidacy. It's, no, it's simply and anything can happen. That was obviously proven um, in 2016. But the the math is very much stacked against uh, Cox. Republicans are now um, there's less registered Republicans here than there are uh, Democrats, obviously, and then uh, people who don't affiliate with any
1: party. Yep. So. Um, Okay, let's actually move uh, slightly down ballot. Yeah. So a state senator from Orange County Democrat named Josh Newman was recalled and it wasn't even close. Um, And this was it's not like uh, even the I think the even the proponents of the recall, um, which is a very rare occasion. Right. Um, Something that doesn't happen very often in California politics. uh, uh, We're pretty open that it's not like they were accusing Newman of some sort of malfeasance Mm -hmm. or any sort of uh, ethical Quandaries or qualms. It was pretty clearly of because he voted for the gas tax increase uh, earlier in, earlier l- last year, and because he won very uh, won a very close race um, in 2016 for that seat. He was seen as the weakest Democrat, and so they went after him to try to knock out the Democrat chances of getting a two th- maintaining a two third super majority in the in the state Senate, and they were very successful with that. a, a Republican, which was voted they recall election and allows you to vote in the the replacement the same day, and a Republican. Ling Chang uh, one that's won that seat who was uh, previously a state legislator and Newman's opponent in
0: 2016 yes. mm-hmm. um, so the implications for so why are we talking about this uh, and what
1: are the implications for housing so well go ahead sure so um, Uh, As you may recall from the big housing debate, um, legislative debate last year, uh, it takes a two-thirds supermajority to do many things um, in the legislature related to new money, Uh, taxes, fees, putting measures on the ballot, those sorts of things. And so um, there are a a lot of lawmakers, Democratic side, who will not support um, doing things like streamlining regulations or taking away um, rules under CEQA, those sorts of things, unless there's money attached to it. And that money comes with a two-thirds vote. And so we had to get two-thirds votes last year in order to pass uh, the bond measure, which is now on the ballot, the $4 billion for low-income housing and veterans home loans, that is you'll be voting on in November, and also for this um, real estate transaction fee, uh, SB2, uh, which passed last year, that um, uh, adds some money to help finance low-income development. All those are two-thirds votes, and that requires people to kind of stick their necks out to pass them.
0: So what this is is an an object lesson for uh, moderate Democrats in swing districts as and well as Republicans, yes yeah. exactly as well as moderate Republicans in swing districts who will have Josh Newman's face in the back of their minds when uh, Atkins or Rendon come into their office saying,
1: hey, you need to vote on this. Exactly. And I don't know necessarily, I mean, we talk a lot about the supermajority being vital for Democrats to do all the sorts of things they want with respect to taxes. The sort of the history has not real, didn't really play, that didn't play out last year when all these votes were, were happening. There yes. were Republicans who were voting for uh, at least one um, in all of the major uh, two-thirds votes that occurred last year, mm-hmm. gas tax, these housing votes, and also the extension of the cap-and-trade environmental rules. And so there were Republicans 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 for all of that. But what I think that this does, though, is um, uh, there's a huge red flag and warning sign that if you're going to take a tough vote, you may be targeted. Yes. Uh, And that is something that's going to give lawmakers who like to keep their jobs um, pause. Uh, Obviously, the type of tax
0: and the type of money that you're voting on matters here. And and a gas tax is something different, right? A gas tax is something that literally, well, hits the vast majority of Californians and that is inherently going to be a more controversial vote than um, voting for a real estate transaction fee, correct? But um, you, any time you're voting for a new tax, you do not want to be branded as a pro-tax legislator, regardless of whatever party you're on. And there might be different revenue streams that are a little more broad-based uh, that
1: will be necessary to um, fund more housing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and again, the are they're, they're people behind the Newman recall have already said that they're looking now at other Democratic lawmakers who are in vulnerable districts that potentially do the same thing. And so um, the kind of the targets are out there. And, you know, you don't it's not you know, the nuance uh, is are not frequently conveyed on campaign mailers. No. Uh, this guy voted to increase taxes is typically a lot of the things that you would just simply need to see to upset a, a certain pe- segment of the, popul- of, the uh, of the electorate. Let's move now
0: to um, some of the local housing measures that were voted on on Tuesday. Uh, You can check out a map I made of um, how various local housing initiatives fared up and down the state um, at calmatters.org. I just wanted to highlight a couple. I'd be interested to know if there were any that kind of stuck out to you. um, Liam shaking his head um, with disdain. Um, uh, So... uh, one of the more notable ones in Emeryville. Have you been to Emeryville?
1: It's impossible not to go to the Bay Area and not somehow go through Emeryville. So, <laughs> yes. been through Emeryville at the least. I've been stuck in that Target parking lot in it's, Emeryville for yeah.
0: multiple hours. Um, uh, Emeryville approved a very, very large bond measure to fund affordable housing, $50 million, which for a, a city the size of Emeryville is a – Major chunk of cash. There's like 12,000 people in Emeryville. Uh, and then in Lafayette, another East Bay city, um, a project that would have brought 44 single family homes to um, some vacant land in Lafayette was rejected by Lafayette voters. And this was a project that uh, had been mired in controversy for some time. Originally, um, a 300-unit apartment building was supposed to be put on that property. Locals resisted that. Um, some YIMBY groups sued. To, go ahead. Sort of,
1: yeah, it's sort of like the progenitor of the YIMBY movement, right? This y- is one of the first projects or issues that a number of these folks in the Bay Area got involved in, um, and that uh, was a rallying and organizing cry for them. Exactly. Um, that uh, They ended up settling that
0: suit, um, and this single-family home project kind of took that project's place the apartment building's place temporarily now it's dead and some people on the yimby side of things think that may open the door for putting this more dense project there which would be in a somewhat ironic I- outcome now let's go to uh our roundup of bills that may have lived or died
1: live or die and thank you matt for coming up with this really awesome sound effects <laughs> that i've yet to invent <laughs> so to round this up um yeah last time we were on we were here with you uh was right before the appropriations committee deadline and we will and our I'll,
0: podcast had a shelf life of one day right
1: and we'll spare you the definition of what those what the appropriations committee is go back and listen if you if you want to know but it's basically a time in right now at the capitol where bills for a lot of bills live and die um, and assembly bills had to get out of the assembly senate bills had to get out of the senate and so here we are uh, with about a half dozen bills we're going to talk about that either made it or didn't. So let's
0: start with the bill that we discussed in detail two weeks ago which was assembly member Rob Bonta's bill that would have required uh, landlords to list um, a reason for evicting someone from their apartment buildings what happened to that bill Liam? It. uh well
1: It died it died yes yeah and how bad did it die badly like it was uh it was quite a quite a trouncing of this bill uh so it's very rare uh, this bill got 16 votes um, on the assembly floor and remember there are 80 assembly members right and it is very rare that a bill will get uh obliterated as much as this one did um, usually because the the representative knowing that the bill was not going to go anywhere would not Sort of put it up for a vote. the only reason to do something like this is to kind of force people to get on the record uh, for what they what they believe and I think that it became pretty clear that even among um, Democrats this was not something that was that was particularly popular
0: um, and that was not the only
1: uh, tenants rights bill that suffered a inglorious fate that day Yes, there was also a bill from assemblyman Richard Bloom it also. I will- and this bill was related to what we know is the called what's called the Ellis Act. Uh, the Ellis Act is the legislation that allows um, uh, uh, owners of uh, rent controlled properties to get out, sort of get out of the apartment business and transfer those uh, uh, their buildings to condos, um, therefore um, removing some rent controlled uh, apartments from the housing stock. Uh, and so Bloom's bill would have extended the time that before condos could be converted back two apartments, um, among other things in that legislation. And that also, while its demise is not as not as inglorious as Bonta's, it uh, also did not get very much support. Um, let's now switch to a different tenants'
0: rights bill that actually. Uh, and that would be uh, Assemblymember Choose bill, which um, would basically Give tenants a little more time to respond to eviction notices.
1: Yeah, so weekends would not count as a days on the clock before you had to respond. That's what he wants to do.
0: So before we move on to um, the the other bills that are on this list, what what type of lessons should we take from the tough time that tenants' rights bills had?
1: Uh, that these bills, as we've mentioned before, are very hard to to pass. And I think that it's not even just a, and so a, a Republican why? Democrat bill. Sorry to uh, interrupt. Yeah. These bills are not just a Republican Democrat bill, but there's a lot of consternation within the Democratic caucus about whether these bills have any value or not. I think it speaks to the power not only of the Apartment Association, um, which is a powerful lobby on both sides of the House, but also the, the Realtors Association. I remember lis- listening to Bloom, when he was talking about his bill, um, said, look at the outset he, you know, he said, hey, guys, just want everybody, my colleagues to know that the apartment association is off my bill. They're not opposed anymore. So it should be cool for you guys to vote on this. And that's not what happened. And the realtors remained opposed. Um, and so these two lobbying groups that we've uh, talked talk a lot about as being among the power players here at the Capitol showed some of their power.
0: Um, Okay, let's move now to um, a bill both Lehman and I have been following very closely, Um, SB 828 and SB
1: 828. Yes. So this is legislation from Senator Scott Wiener from San Francisco. This is the bill that under its current form. uh, And so this made it out uh, uh, of the Senate with some changes now requires cities to zone for. Uh, 125% of their um, of their allocations under the state's um, housing production goals, and so zone more land for housing than than they would have have to in the in the past. And also, um, under new changes, would require those cities and counties also to take into account uh, some underproduction of housing in the past when they're re- reaching these new zoning levels. And so, um, basically, the shorthand of this is require cities to zone for much more housing than they are currently required to do. Yet
0: another attempt to strengthen the state's basic housing law. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And how do you think this fares in uh, the assembly?
1: That's a good question. Um you know this bill is a lot wonkier than as we've discussed than the one that uh, with respect to upzoning or increasing density around transit stops the SB eight twenty seven that died uh, and so it could be an under the radar thing. I don't know. I mean I don't know um, the extent to which uh, same members will feel similarly. I know that in you know this is not a two thirds vote bill for instance and mm-hmm. so you don't have to worry about certain members of the caucus that you would know perhaps those from Marin County mm-hmm. and other places that have been reluctant to these sorts of changes in the past. Uh, they're not necessarily needed uh, to get uh, forty-one votes. Let's move on to another bill we've discussed before.
0: That would be Assemblymember David Chu's bill um, that would try to revive redevelopment. That bill.
1: I will remember you.
0: Yes, and that comes as
1: little surprise to um, anyone who's been kind of following that. That debate. Yeah. I think even from the beginning, uh, Chu and his allies on this laid out that like, look, we're not trying to pass a uh, revival of redevelopment, sort of property tax increment, or or using the sort of uh, tax increment financing or, or increases in property taxes in certain neighborhoods to fund affordable housing. That, that That's generally the idea. Uh, very complicated, long history with this, with this process. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted basically this year, the assembly members who were behind it, wanted to float the idea, kind of see how far they could get, see if there were some negotiations they could have in advance because they expect the next governor to come in and and want to revive a certain portion of this. And that is something that um, uh, Newsom has said he will do. And so kind of trying to get out ahead and shape the debate, uh, we can argue about how successful that was. But I think that there was some groundwork laid uh, that that was not here this time last year on this idea.
0: And that's our roundup of uh, bills that made it through both the suspense file and the House of Origin deadline. Let's move on to our final portion of this grab bag which is uh, one of our favorite topics on the podcast. There was some news around rent control. What was that news um, last week?
1: Yes. So uh, there was a study that was put out, actually more of a fl- trial balloon a suggestion yeah, that's what compromise um, by uh, the folks at UC Berkeley's Turner Center, um, which is a, you know, they're the one of the preeminent um, housing uh, uh, sort of uh, researchers in the state. And so they said, look, uh, we're kind of worried about rent control dominating the conversation over the next uh, six months and some of the effects that this debate might have. Um, and so we're going to try to cut through that and put forward a few ideas that we think might get the repeal of Costa Hawkins, which again is the state law that um, prohibits it's um, most rent control expansions, um, uh, uh, that's what, what's going to be on the ballot in November most certainly. And so we at the Turner Center may not want to see that. And so maybe we can reach a compromise with tennis groups and and landlords. And that kind of brings us to our number of the fortnight. Right, which is 7.8%. And what is, what is that? So one of the ideas that the Turner Center had to try to uh, sort of uh, reach a compromise on this idea is uh, introducing rent caps. So they said, look, um, uh, rent caps have a history in California. These are used and have been used recently in wildfire areas where landlords are not allowed to increase rents over a certain percentage. And so let's make that mandatory. But we'll have um, the cap they proposed is inflation plus 5%. -hmm. So no rents could be higher than that amount annually. Rent increases could be higher than that amount annually. And the 7.8% is what the rent cap would have been in Los Angeles last year had this proposal been in place. Um, and just to give some context
0: to that number, so I just went ahead and looked at uh, what kind of the year-over-year um, appreciation uh, there was for your medium two-bedroom apartment in various cities in California to kind of see, you know, where, where this stacks up. So in Sacramento, which does not currently have rent control, so there was a 9% increase uh, in apartment prices, right? So this type of cap, um, that's 7 that 7.8%, that's specific to LA, but that's in the ballpark of pretty much right. everything around the state. Right. Um, that would conceivably help, right? That would conceivably help in a place like Sacramento. Would have limited, yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, in other parts of the state, um, the annual increase in rents was you know, significantly lower than that 7.8%, including places like Los Angeles, places like
1: San Diego. And San Francisco. And San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, what, to to be clear, they were not proposing um, that they would do away with existing rent control laws uh, that are in any 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 cities that currently have yes. them. This would be uh, on top of that. Um, and they their second idea that they had um, to help increase the low income housing stock was uh, was uh providing property tax breaks for any landlords who want to convert their housing to low income so if they want to say look okay we'll do a uh will take this half my condo building and make it low income Mm -hmm. they won't pay property taxes on that or pay lower property taxes for a a a certain period of time
0: and um the tenants group's reaction to this was yeah sure (laughs) that's perfectly reasonable and we'll meet you halfway
1: right no in fact it was the the opposite um tenant groups were not at all enthused with this idea they said look like yeah i think my favorite quote was from the spokesman uh for the repeal uh, costa hawkins campaign i ran these ideas by him and he says this is jim ross and he said look uh if corporate landlords want to stop price gouging they should stop price gouging uh so okay you know, fair enough. Um, and so, yeah, not a lot of um, not a lot of enthusiasm uh, on that side for these ideas. No. And, and that that doesn't come as
0: a surprise, I think, to either of us, cons- considering no. what the tenor of the debate
1: was when there was a legislative hearing on this in January. That's right. And I think, uh, as we said earlier in the podcast, um, tennis groups are not at all happy with uh, and shouldn't be happy with the legislative response to some of their ideas and concerns, uh, again, given the sort of uh, w- pretty um, resounding defeats that some of their bills got. And so in that environment, um, the idea of a, of a compromise uh, being rejected um, is not something that uh, should be surprising. Um, what should we make of the landlords giving on this point? So I think this is really actually really interesting. Because Me too. We've, we've seen the Apartment Association give on uh, rent uh, cap issues uh, a lot over the past year uh, we saw in the hearing that we had in the legislature uh, in January where they were willing to give on the year that uh, rent control would apply to and so this was this is one of Costa Hawkins rules it says 1995 that, 1995 um, across the state and in cities where there were existing rent control policies San Francisco and LA we're talking late 70s for when uh, uh, rent control could be implemented on on buildings that were built on uh, uh, after that date and so they were willing they were part of the that said yeah we're willing to change that date um and so that's the first time uh that we had heard them willing to give on a principal issue related to cost hawkins. The apartment association, when I talked to them about the Berkeley study, uh embraced it. They said, yes, if you pair rent caps with these property tax breaks, then yeah, we'll 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 like it. We'll we'll do it. And so um I think certainly the the leverage um being put on them through this debate over um, Costa-Hawkins now has uh, led to them taking a different tact, which is being softer on on this issue than they they have been in the past. Um, And I think also it's a tactical move, too, because they want to be seen as the reasonable party. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if they're willing to openly talk about concessions, then that's what they're going for. Mm -hmm. How much does this reflect um, any
0: fear from the landlords that this is going to be very scary come November that this thing very well much might pass.
1: Well, they've already talked about, you know, having to spend 60 million or higher to defeat it. Yes. Uh I don't know about you, but I'd prefer not to spend $60 million, 60 million if I didn't have to. Um and so I think that amount of money shows that uh that they're very scared and very serious about mounting the effort that there's going to take uh, potentially to defeat a measure like this. And so, yeah, anything you can do, do, do to avoid doing that, um, I think it's something that you may want to try to look at. Do you think there's any
0: chance that this does end up back in the legislature and that uh, the ballot measure gets pulled? Uh, almost certainly no. Yeah, almost that, certainly I don't no. think so. Either. Now,
1: now there is a um, under new rules. There is a way uh, where this can actually happen. They have until June 28th. If the proponents of this want to pull their measure back, they can do it. Um, there is, in fact, a hearing. Um, that uh, under new rules now, the legislature has to sit down and talk about all these initiatives. They don't have to. There's nothing that they can do. There's nothing they can pass or anything. But there is a public hearing on this. So there will be one on rent control on June 21st, which should be barn burner ish. Uh, not like it was in January, but I think any time you're going to have this uh, up for discussion at the Capitol, there'll be a lot of heated uh, testimony. And so I would not be surprised to see that. But I think that will be more theater than anything else. Yes, um, I would agree with that. The other thing you can read from this is that the specific
0: proposals outlined by the Turner Center weren't going to cripple landlords. I mean, that, that's right. It's been very good to be a landlord in California. Um for pretty much forever, but especially over the last five to, you know, post-recession, right? Yeah. It, that's, it's been very, very good to own property and rent it out. So, implementing these types of rent- controls isn't going to kill the landlord industry.
1: They, have, they don't, don't seem to think
0: so. No. That concludes our uh, potpourri grab bag roundup. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Liam? No. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DylanLiam and I'm at M Levin (music) reports.